Full Scope, Human Longevity and Performance Podcast. We want you to become the most exceptional, high-performing version of yourself. And to facilitate this, we are giving away the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook absolutely free. This is a tremendous resource that will tell you the lifestyle behaviors and mindset that will lead to the best outcomes and longevity. To get this, go to our website, wondermedicine.com or fullscope.org, put in your email, and we will send you this amazing resource, the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook. Last call for alcohol. Welcome back to Full Scope, everybody. Sorry about taking a couple months off of posting podcasts. I've been involved in some pretty serious building projects, experienced some pretty significant failure, and learned a lot. But from here on out, I hope to get a podcast up every single month. And so please tune in. If you are enjoying these podcasts, do rate this podcast and even leave a comment on whatever platform you get your podcast from. It really helps other people find the podcast, and it helps me just get some feedback about how to be better about this. Several people have reached out to me and said they want more topics on mental health and psychology and things like that. And to oblige these people, today... On full scope, we're going to talk about alcohol withdrawal. We're going to briefly touch on the psychology of addiction. Then we're going to talk about the physiology of alcoholism and alcohol dependence. We're then going to break into alcohol withdrawal and what type of symptoms people might experience and how to monitor those withdrawals. We're also going to talk about treatment, both out of the hospital and in the hospital. And then we're going to finish by talking about how to prevent recurrence of drinking again, restarting alcohol. I'm going to use the term alcohol throughout this podcast, but what I'm really referring to is ethanol. Ethanol is a specific type of alcohol. It's the alcohol present in most all the booze that us humans drink. And so when I say alcohol, please note that I'm referring specifically to ethanol, as there are many other types of alcohols that we deal with in chemistry, medicine, and every other uh, scientific discipline. All right, let's talk briefly about the psychology of addiction. There are numerous definitions of addiction. Some are narrowed to just deal with substances and substance abuse. I'm talking about drugs. Some are more broad. I'm going to give you my definition, and I use a more broad definition. This is what I tell my patients, and this is how I think about addiction in my everyday medical practice. An addiction is a behavior that a person does routinely, it has a negative impact on their life, or I should probably say a net negative impact on their life, and they are unable to stop doing this behavior voluntarily. And so that could be a drug, 
or that could be any other behavior really. I find this definition to be both simple and useful in my clinical practice. And what I find these days is that the most common thing people are addicted to is sugar. Our food is the biggest drug and the biggest source of addiction, and more specifically, sugar, added sugar in the diet. This now kills more people than all other illicit substances combined. Generally, I will separate addictive things or substances into two main categories. The first category are things that are chemically addictive. And when I say chemically addictive, I mean that they hijack parts of our physiology and make it harder for us to stop using said substance or whatever it is. The other class of addictive substances, behaviors, or things are what I refer to as habit-forming. Typically, these things make us feel good in some way, and anything that makes us feel good has the propensity, has the propensity to become an addiction. I think that people could make the argument that at some level, every type of addictive substance or behavior does in fact hijack our dopaminergic neural networks in our brain, our reward networks, and as a result could be referred to as somewhat chemically addictive. But I kind of reserve that chemical addiction for things that are really well defined physiologically. Like, for instance, tobacco. We can very easily become addicted to nicotine. When that nicotine is withdrawn, we develop withdrawal from it and we want it badly. We crave it. We need it back. Same thing goes for alcohol, which we'll talk extensively about here soon. And I kind of contrast that to other other things, say an addiction to exercise. Believe it or not, exercise is very, very healthy, but there are some people who do it too much. They do it for hours and hours every day, and it actually leads to damage to things like the heart and cardiovascular system. And so those types of, of, of behavioral addictions are not involving something that is chemically addictive, something that if we stop doing, we would have some sort of chemical craving or, or withdrawal from it that causes a chemical craving. I know that's kind of, uh, kind of a loose definition, but I think that's really, really a helpful thing when thinking about addictions, chemical versus habit-forming. Anything that feels good can be habit-forming, but some substances are, in fact, chemically addictive, and those are the most potentially dangerous, the most likely to become addictions, and the things we have to keep the closest eye on as physicians, as health advocates, as policymakers, and everything else like that. All right, let's talk a little bit about alcohol, how it works, and the physiology of dependence. Alcohol is a central nervous system depressant. It depresses our brains and the rest of our bodies. I know some people will say, that is not true. When I go out and drink, 
I party, I have fun, I have so much more energy, and I know that's true, and I agree that when you drink alcohol, your inhibitions are lowered, you feel less pain, you often get very excited because of the reward pathways that are going off in your brain, but truly, if you do drink enough alcohol, you will eventually go to sleep, and it is, in fact, a depressant. What alcohol does is it acts on the GABAergic receptors in the brain. It also acts on the glutaminergic receptors in the brain. And remember, GABA tends to be inhibitory. GABA turns the brain down. In contrast, glutaminergic receptors tend to be activating. And so a substance that both activates GABA receptors and inhibits glutaminergic receptors is bound to be quite a powerful depressant. Somebody who drinks regularly will start to change the physiology in their brain such that they make less GABA receptors and they make more glutaminergic receptors. This is an adaptive response to drinking alcohol. And basically, it is tolerance developing. We all know the people who drink a lot. They drink regularly. They can put down a fifth or 720 milliliter bottle of hard alcohol and still have a conversation. Whereas most of us would be on the floor a, th a fourth or halfway in to that bottle. And so tolerance occurs to alcohol or to any other substance when our physiology reworks itself to better handle dealing with that substance regularly. In the case of alcohol, inhibitory gabaminergic receptors are downregulated and excitatory glutaminergic receptors are upregulated. Now, here's the problem. When somebody stops drinking alcohol that has been drinking regularly and develops tolerance, they will have withdrawal from alcohol, and alcohol withdrawal can be a beast. Let's talk a little bit about withdrawal in general. Now, people can have withdrawals from a number of different chemical substances that are used regularly. In fact, any substance that leads to tolerance tends to have some form of withdrawal. Sometimes these can be more subtle than others, but I promise you, if there is tolerance that is occurring, you will have some form of withdrawal, sometimes very minor, that will be experienced by that chronic or everyday or quite often user. I think about withdrawals in a very simple way, and this is true a lot of the time. Whatever the acute effect of a given drug is, whatever the effect of this drug is when someone is actually taking it, the withdrawal from stopping that drug tends to be exactly the opposite, which kind of makes sense, right? You get the opposite reaction when you stop the drug as you did when you took the drug. Now, for something like 
a stimulant, let's say both cocaine and methamphetamine. These are really common stimulants. They upregulate a lot of the sympathetic nervous system, upregulate brain activity when people are using that substance. Now, when people stop using that substance, what happens? All of a sudden, the brain goes into a very dormant, very relaxed state. And so someone that goes on a coke bender for, let's say, two or three days, they might finish up and then they'll sleep for 36 hours. You know, somebody normally would not sleep for that long, but somebody who's been using something like cocaine, uh, a stimulant drug, will have that opposite effect and withdrawal, and it will cause them to sleep. Interestingly, these stimulants, which are very, very dangerous when you take them at the time of use, tend to be much, much less dangerous, in fact, hardly dangerous at all, to withdraw from. It's usually not very... uh, not very much of a risk to go to sleep for a few days after a big coke vendor. You're much more likely to have a heart attack, you know, after you've taken that, I don't know, railed that fourth line of cocaine than, than you are three days later when you're just still sleeping and exhausted from the whole experience. Now, in contrast, alcohol is a depressant. It depresses our brains and our bodies when we use it. Now, when somebody that uses it regularly, who has down-regulated their GABAergic receptors and upregulated their glutaminergic receptor stops, what you have is a neuroexcitatory state. This neuroexcitatory state from alcohol withdrawal is extremely dangerous, and many people have died from withdrawing from alcohol. In fact, withdrawing from alcohol tends to be much more dangerous than actually using alcohol in the moment, assuming somebody doesn't have an an accident or traumatic injury while they are intoxicated. Alcohol withdrawal is a very, very uncomfortable state. And the discomfort that people experience when they try to stop drinking alcohol is a big hindrance or a big barrier to people stopping drinking because they know this bad thing withdrawal is going to happen oftentimes people are afraid of it and for that reason alone they will keep drinking all right let's talk a little bit about the epidemiology of alcohol the morbidity and mortality etc it's estimated that in the united states alone Almost 100,000 people die every year from causes related to alcohol. And these, those 100,000 people disproportionately affects younger individuals that otherwise would not have died. What's up, Full Scope listeners? If you are enjoying this content, if this content is bringing you value, please share it with your friends, loved ones, and everyone else. Post it online, on social media. Let your friends know. Have them subscribe. Put the word out there. That's all we really ask. And at the very least, give us a review and rate the podcast. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show.
In one JAMA Psych study in 2018, it's estimated that the lifetime occurrence of alcohol use disorder, meaning people that have a problem with alcohol using too much, is as high as 29% of individuals. Almost a third of people will have some problem with alcohol use disorder in their lifetime, according to this study. Men are at the highest risk, and particularly white and Native American men seem to be the most affected by this problem. As we said, alcohol consumption disproportionately affects young people early in their lives. And in the age group between 20 and 39 years, 13.5% of all deaths are alcohol attributable. Worldwide, it's thought that about 3 million deaths every year are related to alcohol, which represents about 5% of, of, the, of global death. And so acutely being intoxicated with alcohol is, is a problem, I think, oftentimes for the accidents and problems that people can have, like car accidents and drowning. But in addition to the dangers of being acutely intoxicated with alcohol, as we noted, alcohol withdrawal is also very dangerous. It is not known how many people die every year from alcohol withdrawal. But for those individuals who do develop severe alcohol withdrawal and what's a condition called delirium tremens, where people become extremely confused and delirious, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but one to five percent of those people that develop that severe of alcohol withdrawal are at are at risk of dying and in fact do die and without treatment it's thought that as many as 25 or a quarter of those people who develop severe alcohol withdrawal namely delirium tremens um, would die without treatment so alcohol withdrawal can be very very dangerous and for that reason it's often done or taken care of in a hospital or observed setting. All right, who will develop alcohol withdrawal? Well, when you read studies and look at papers, you basically find things that say about 50% of regular alcohol users will have alcohol withdrawal upon cessation, of which about 5% of those people will have severe alcohol withdrawal. And so what what the deal is is that some people tend to have bad withdrawals from alcohol, about half of people, and about the other half of people tend to not have as severe alcohol withdrawal. What I will say, and this is coming from experience, is that everybody who drinks alcohol regularly will experience some form of withdrawal. Sometimes this can be quite mild, Things like uh, mild tremor, a little bit of agitation, maybe just a little bit of uneasiness, but that still does count as withdrawal symptoms. People who have been drinking alcohol for a longer duration of time, months or years, people who drink larger quantities of alcohol every day are more likely to experience clinically significant alcohol withdrawal. So the more you drink and the longer you've, dr you've drank for, 
the more likely you are to have withdrawal. But I feel like one of the biggest indicators of bad alcohol withdrawal is simply a history of having bad alcohol withdrawal. And so just asking a patient, have you ever withdrawn from alcohol before? What did that look like? Did you have to go to the ICU? Have you ever had a seizure from alcohol withdrawal? All those questions can point you into the direction of whether or not this this could turn into a really serious alcohol withdrawal event or something more mild. All right, let's talk a little bit about what alcohol withdrawal actually looks like. What are you going to see or experience if you were having alcohol withdrawal? Well, some of the most common things are anxiety and agitation. So people feel very uneasy. They can uh, develop anxiety, even if this is not something they had in the past. They can be shaky and have tremors. In fact, the shakes are a very common thing in alcohol withdrawal. They can have chills, fevers, and sweats. They're shaky, they're sweaty, they're anxious. They can have increases in all their vital sign parameters. So they can have tachycardia or high heart rate. They can have tachypnea or a fast breathing. They can have hypertension or high blood pressure. And like we said, they can have high temperature or fever. And along with that tachycardia, they can also experience heart arrhythmias. They can also have GI upset. In fact, nausea, vomiting, general discomfort in the stomach, diarrhea, constipation, all of those things can happen with alcohol withdrawal. Generally, they will have neuroexcitatory findings. So you'll see things like hyperreflexia or reflexes that are more pronounced than normal. And then finally, among the common symptoms, they have insomnia. They can't sleep. Remember that Alcohol is a depressant, and in the withdrawal from alcohol, you have a very stimulating or neuroexcitatory effect, and you're probably not going to be able to sleep too well when that is going on. Now, those are the more mild symptoms of alcohol withdrawal, but I will note that all of those, quote, mild symptoms can be moderate or even severe. You can have extreme anxiety, marked tremors very high fevers, very high heart rate, very high autonomic instability. You can have marked GI upset, and you cannot sleep at all for days. So all of those things can be mild, moderate, or severe for a given individual withdrawing from alcohol. Now, remember we talked about how alcohol withdrawal kills people, how it can be very dangerous. And so some of the more severe symptoms that you might see with alcohol withdrawal are hallucinations. People can very commonly have both auditory and visual hallucinations as well as seizures. And seizures are a very scary deal. If alcohol withdrawal has progressed to seizures, that's a very uh, dangerous sign and, and it's very important to act quickly at that point. Patients can also develop extreme delirium. And delirium is marked by a waxing and waning level of consciousness and a 
a general disorientation as to what is going on. But basically, delirium tremens is just a severe form of a lot of the symptoms we've already mentioned, including agitation, confusion, disorientation, all different types of hallucinations, uh, very significant vital sign abnormalities, uh, lots of diaphoresis, and of course autonomic instability. This autonomic instability can become so severe that it can lead to death. You can imagine someone could have so much neuroexcitatory function in their brain that they begin to seize and they don't stop seizing and they're unable to breathe during that and they die as a result. Or they get severe tachycardia, their heart goes into a arrhythmia, it's an arrhythmia that can't provide enough perfusion, their blood pressure drops and they die. And this is why people in very severe alcohol withdrawal are at very high risk of dying because these symptoms can lead to such severe autonomic instability, seizures, and other serious problems. Alright, I have two questions for the listeners. Question number one, have you ever gotten very, very intoxicated, passed out at night, and then all of a sudden, maybe five, six hours later, just woken up from sleep and just felt wide awake, just totally awake, and you're thinking, what the heck is going on? I'm exhausted. I drank so much. I need to be sleeping. Why am I awake right now? Well, what is going on is literally that alcohol, which was flooding your system before, has now been taken away, and you have this excitatory wake up really early in the morning, and that actually is somewhat of an acute withdrawal from alcohol. Another question. Have you ever had a weekend, a long weekend in fact, where you did a lot of drinking? Maybe you had a wedding, and Thursday night you got in town, you got first night-itis, you, you drank with all your buddies, Next day, Friday, you had the rehearsal dinner. Maybe you got started with some drinks a little bit before. You drank at the rehearsal dinner. The next day, you kind of had events all day at the wedding, and there was some drinking and such. And then, of course, you had the wedding, and you got very intoxicated at, at, at that. And then the next day on Sunday, you're sitting around, and, uh, you know, around midday on Sunday, you feel a little bit of beating in your chest, you feel this uneasiness coming over you, you feel a little bit agitated, and then you say to yourself, man, I, I just don't feel right, something's off. That, in fact, is some alcohol withdrawal. Maybe at that point somebody offered you a beer or a drink, and you just had one, and you were amazed that immediately after taking just one sip of alcohol, you felt so much better. Well, what you experienced after that long weekend of drinking was in fact a a bit of alcohol withdrawal. And if you have been there in that situation, you yourself have experienced a mild form of alcohol withdrawal. Okay, so what does the timeline of alcohol withdrawal look like? 
So one of the first things I ask people who come into the hospital um, intoxicated or, or starting early into their withdrawal is when was the last time you had a drink? What is time zero for when you stop drinking? Because usually alcohol withdrawal will follow somewhat of a time course. And what I will say is that this time course is is not hard and fast. People break it all the time. But alcohol withdrawal, believe it or not, can last, in fact, regularly lasts for seven, even eight days sometimes. Generally, the first day or two are fairly mild comparatively. People go into severe withdrawal during days three and four of the process. This is generally when people enter into things like delirium tremens, um, usually a little bit earlier. Just before that is when people are most likely to seize. And then generally in the second half of the week is when alcohol withdrawal begins to improve. And now we're talking about a really severe alcohol withdrawal lasting a week. Most people's alcohol withdrawal would just last for a day, two, maybe three at the most. What I will say though is that people sometimes can withdraw even longer. I think that delirium kind of leads to more delirium. So if someone is really confused with delirium tremens on day five, they may continue that deliriousness for you know, eight, nine, ten. I've even seen people in an alcohol withdrawal delirium state up into 11, 12, 13 days after they stop drinking. And so while the seven-day rule, the worst symptoms around day three to four are kind of nice, I see a lot of people break break, break these rules all the time. But it can be helpful to know. This stuff can go on for a long time. And even after withdrawal is is finished people can still continue to have insomnia worse depression they can be more fatigued they can almost have like a subacute post-acute withdrawal alcohol withdrawal symptom and that is really important to recognize as a clinician because those continued withdrawal symptoms are going to again make a person more likely to pick up the bottle in the future. And so treating those uh, continued kind of post-acute withdrawal symptoms is really important to help keep people off the sauce. And, and just like how we help people through acute withdrawal, we, we need to help them through kind of subacute or chronic alcohol withdrawal symptoms as well. And those after withdrawal kind of subacute chronic symptoms tend to most commonly be things like insomnia, depression, fatigue, other mental health problems. And there, there's other things as well, but those are some of the main things. All right, so that's a lot of the backstory on alcohol withdrawal. Um, what, what some of the psychology of addiction is, some of the physiology of alcohol withdrawal, some of the symptoms of alcohol withdrawal. And I want to stop it there, and we're going to come back with a part two, and we're going to talk about how we monitor alcohol withdrawal in the hospital, some of the helpful workup for alcohol withdrawal, and then most importantly, how we treat alcohol withdrawal. 
And of course, I'm going to give you a little bit of a hint. The cause of alcohol withdrawal is also the treatment. And so, thanks again, and we'll see you for part two soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Full Scope Podcast and investing in your health. I'm Dr. Bill Randenberg. If you're enjoying the content, please rate, review, and share this content with all of your friends online and all your social media platforms. Please understand that this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure your specific medical condition. This podcast does not create any type of doctor-patient relationship between myself, Dr. Brandenburg, and you, the listener. If you do need help with your life, with your health, with anything regarding your longevity or performance, please check out wondermedicine.com. Our longevity and performance program is the best in the world and is ready to help you right now, today, become the best possible individual you can be. Thanks. Bye-bye. Pew.